Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Daniel L. Hames, MD, on his article titled Risk Factors for Mortality in Critically Ill Children Requiring Renal Replacement Therapy, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in November 2019. To access the full article, visit pccmjournal.org. Dr. Hames is an attending physician in the Division of Cardiovascular Critical Care within the Department of Cardiology at Boston Children's Hospital and an instructor in the Department of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Danny. Thank you so much, Dr. Parker. I appreciate it. Uh, Would you please start by giving us some background for your study? What do we know about timing and indications for renal replacement therapy? Absolutely. So... When I first learned about the indications for starting renal replacement therapy, I learned the mnemonic AEIOU, and uh, with A being profound acidosis, E being electrolyte abnormality, namely hyperkalemia, I being ingestion or intoxication with a substance able to be dialyzed, O being profound fluid overload, and then U being uremia or an elevated BUN. And I think people generally feel more comfortable when initiating dialysis with hyperkalemia and EKG changes or with ingestions, but there seems to be some challenges in what constitutes the degree of fluid overload or the degree of uremia that should prompt initiation of renal replacement therapy. And some of the benefits of earlier initiation of renal replacement therapy include preventing fluid accumulation, improving solute and electrolyte balance, and allowing for the provision of medications, nutrition, and blood products, which are essential for some of the critically ill children we care for. Um, But it also exposes patients to an invasive procedure with a a central venous catheter or a peritoneal dialysis catheter, and then a therapy which is not without its own inherent risks and may not be necessary when sometimes renal function might otherwise recover on its own. And so there have been a number of observational studies in adults that demonstrated that renal replacement therapy initiation at a lower degree of fluid accumulation was associated with improved outcomes. And then more recently, there have been a couple of randomized controlled trials that have looked at this. So the uh, AKIKI study, uh, A-K-I-K-I, was a multi-center randomized controlled trial that was done in France and published in the New England Journal in 2016. And they randomized patients with stage three acute kidney injury who required mechanical ventilation, catecholamine infusion, or both to receive either immediate renal replacement therapy or a delayed strategy in which renal replacement therapy was only started when they met certain criteria related to hyperkalemia, acidosis, pulmonary edema, or a BUN threshold. And In this study, they found no difference in 60-day mortality between the early and the delayed group. Um, But in this study, also, uh, 50% of those who were randomized to the delayed strategy group did not end up receiving renal replacement therapy. And those who did receive renal replacement therapy in this delayed strategy group had the highest overall percent mortality out of the entire cohort. And those who who were in the delayed strategy who did not receive renal replacement therapy had an overall lower severity of illness and a pretty low mortality rate. So I think that suggests that there's still ongoing need to risk stratify which patients with acute kidney injury will benefit most from starting early renal replacement therapy and which patients will ultimately recover kidney function on their own. Um, One additional drawback to this study is that there was no mention of fluid balance for patients, which 
is a significant contributor to mortality in critically ill children. Um, there has been an increasing amount of evidence that high degrees of fluid overload at the time of starting renal replacement therapy is being associated with worse clinical outcomes. And uh, Dr. Modem down at University of Texas and Southwestern uh, in Dallas had published a study a few years ago in pediatric critical care medicine that nicely evaluated the timing of starting continuous renal replacement therapy in critically ill children. And they found that a higher proportion of non-survivors had a higher degree of fluid accumulation at the time of starting renal replacement therapy. And in their multivariate analysis, they found that a higher degree of fluid overload and then a longer delay from when they were and when patients were admitted to the ICU to starting renal replacement therapy were both independently associated with mortality. And one of the limitations that we discussed in this paper as we were designing our study is that the timing of renal replacement therapy was evaluated from ICU admission. And we felt it may not account for patients who are in the ICU for a few days before developing acute kidney injury and uh, was different from how the adult randomized controlled trials had defined early versus late renal replacement therapy. And so our goal as we were designing our study was to evaluate our own experience with timing of renal replacement therapy initiation. So how did you do this study? So we performed a retrospective cohort study and evaluated uh, patients receiving any mode of renal replacement therapy in either our medical ICU, our surgical ICU, our cardiac ICU, and our neonatal ICU over a nine-year period between the years 2009 and 2017. And it's important to note that we did not include cardiac surgical patients. Um, we have analyzed them separately, but felt that the timed insult of cardiopulmonary bypass was different from the rest of the general PICU population. And also important to note that our NICU admits patients up to six months of age, which is why we uh, decided to screen the NICU patients, but we did exclude premature infants less than 37 weeks gestation. We used current procedural terminology codes for renal replacement therapy to identify those who patients who had received renal replacement therapy during inpatient encounters over the time period. And then we went through and we screened each of these records to exclude patients who had chronic kidney disease, uh, if they had received renal replacement therapy for an indication other than the specific indications of fluid overload or acute kidney injury. So that excluded patients with hyperammonemia or who had ingested something. And then if they received renal replacement therapy prior to being admission to the ICU, we also excluded these patients. And we looked at a number of different variables. Um, we looked at some basic demographic data, the level of respiratory and hemodynamic support that they were on at the time that they started renal replacement therapy. We looked at markers of renal function, including their creatinine and their urine output. And then we looked at their fluid balance from ICU admission until starting renal replacement therapy. We defined the degree of acute kidney injury based on the uh, kidney disease improving global outcomes or the KDGO classification system. And then we looked at the timing of renal replacement therapy initiation from several intervals. So we did decide to look at the time between when patients were admitted to the ICU and when they were started on renal replacement therapy. But then we also chose to look at the time from when the patient's peak creatinine was drawn or their highest creatinine from ICU admission till starting renal replacement therapy. And then we looked at, we identified the time where they first met criteria for stage three acute kidney injury based on either their creatinine uh, threshold or their urine output threshold and looked at that timing between when they first met that criteria to starting renal replacement therapy. And then finally, we looked at their fluid balance after uh, starting renal replacement therapy over a 72-hour period. And our goal in this was to try to evaluate the effectiveness of renal replacement therapy. 
And then finally, we looked at whether or not patients were on ECMO. Um, and because these patients are unique, we uh, elected to look at their fluid balance a little bit closer, namely at the amount of ultrafiltration that was performed while they were on ECMO as well. What were your primary findings in this study? So we screened uh, 463 patients uh, who had received renal replacement therapy while inpatient over the study period, and we identified 99 separate encounters for analysis. Uh, the cohort was 50% male, and the median age at the start of renal replacement therapy was 10 and a half years old. The most common diagnoses that we found at admission were ARDS or respiratory failure, Stem cell transplant patients, meaning that they had received a stem cell transplant during that hospital admission, sepsis, and then medical cardiac patients. And the patients were quite ill. Uh, 80% of them had required invasive mechanical ventilation at the time of starting renal replacement therapy. 62% were requiring vasoactive infusions at the time of starting renal replacement therapy. And then 30% out of the whole cohort had required ECMO at some point during that hospitalization. And only 14% of the patients had isolated acute kidney injury uh, where, compared to uh, 57% who required both vasoactive or anotropic medications and mechanical ventilation at the time of starting renal replacement therapy. The median ICU and hospital length of stay were long at 24 and 52 days, respectively. So the, the patients were quite ill and, uh, and, and relatively complex. We decided to look at all modes of renal replacement therapy, and so we identified that most patients received either continuous renal replacement therapy or intermittent hemodialysis as their primary modalities, with only 3% of patients receiving uh, peritoneal dialysis as their primary modality of renal replacement therapy. Both fluid removal and clearance were the predominant indication for starting uh, renal replacement therapy, but it was fairly evenly split between requiring it for both, requiring it for fluid overload alone, and then requiring it uh, simply for clearance purposes. And all but two patients had stage three acute kidney injury. So the vast majority of these patients were fairly progressed in their acute kidney injury. And the patients who had required ECMO were a challenge to, for us to try to figure out how to deal with. And they ended up making up a sizable portion of the cohort. Um, as I mentioned, 30% had required ECMO at some point during their hospitalization. So 20 of these patients had started on renal replacement therapy while they were on ECMO. Um, eight were started after decannulation, and then two patients were on dialysis before being uh, cannulated to ECMO. Um, at our institution, ultrafiltration is performed at the discretion of the ICU attending, and so it doesn't necessarily involve the nephrology team. And so this definitely mitigated the degree of fluid accumulation in this cohort, which is why we felt it was important to analyze them separately. And then the mortality rate was high. Uh, it was uh, 56%. And when we looked at the specific diagnoses, the mortality rates were particularly high for those with respiratory failure, those who were stem cell transplant patients, and then those uh, infants with congenital diaphragmatic hernia. And then we also looked at the uh, survivors. So there were 44 survivors, and 19 of these patients had complete recovery of their renal function. 18 had stage three acute kidney injury at the time of discharge from the hospital. And five continued to require renal replacement therapy at the time of discharge. Did you identify factors that were associated with mortality or with adverse outcomes? We did. So um, as I mentioned, we analyzed the ECMO cohort separately. So to look at that patient population first, um, we found that 
non-survivors were younger and had a lower weight for age z-score and they also had a higher degree of fluid accumulation while on ecmo and when we uh, entered them into a multivariable analysis we found that the lower weight for age z-score and the higher degree of fluid accumulation on ecmo were both independently associated with mortality one of the interesting things was that despite this finding of a higher fluid overload uh, for these patients on ECMO, there was no difference in the amount of ultrafiltration that was performed or the urine output. So suggesting that perhaps non-survivors in this cohort had more fluid intake while on ECMO that may have contributed to their mortality. And then when we looked at the cohort as a whole in our univariate analysis, we found that the non-survivors had a lower weight for HZ score, uh, a higher degree of fluid accumulation between being admitted to the ICU and starting on renal replacement therapy, and then a higher percentage of non-survivors required invasive mechanical ventilation. When we looked at all of the three time points analyzed that I had mentioned before, so from ICU admission, from when their peak creatinine was drawn, and from when they first met criteria for stage three acute kidney injury, non-survivors were started on renal replacement therapy later than survivors for all of these time points. And then we also found that non-survivors had a higher degree of fluid accumulation in the 72 hours after starting on renal replacement therapy compared with survivors. One other interesting finding that we found in this univariate analysis was that survivors actually had a higher peak creatinine uh, compared with non-survivors, um, which was a little counterintuitive. Uh, when we were looking at potential explanations, we we thought that uh, it was potential potentially due to the fact that survivors had a higher weight for age z-score and so potentially had more muscle mass contributing to the higher creatinine. Um, we did attempt to adjust for the creatinine based on fluid balance in the event that there was a dilutional effect from uh, more fluid accumulation in non-survivors contributing to the lower serum value, but this did not end up adjusting the results at all. And then it's also possible that since more survivors had just isolated acute kidney injury, their creatinine was allowed to potentially rise a little bit higher prior to starting renal replacement therapy. But I think one of the big takeaways from this is that it speaks to some of the challenges with our current monitoring of acute kidney injury and the, the inadequacy of creatinine as a, as a marker of, of renal injury. And in our multivariable analysis, there were three factors that we found to be independently associated with mortality. So these were the need for invasive mechanical ventilation at the time of starting renal replacement therapy, a longer duration between when a patient first met criteria for stage three acute kidney injury and starting renal replacement therapy, and a higher degree of fluid accumulation after starting renal replacement therapy, all independently being associated with mortality. So in other words, we found that the longer a patient spent with stage three acute kidney injury prior to starting renal replacement therapy, the higher their odds of mortality. And additionally, if they had a higher degree of fluid accumulation in the several days after starting renal replacement therapy, this potentially indicated that renal replacement therapy was ineffective in augmenting their fluid balance and, and their outcomes were worse. Would you talk about the limitations of the study? Of course. So I think there are several important limitations to this study. The retrospective design is one of the biggest ones, and it, it may not have accounted for additional risk factors. And we were reliant on accurate fluid balance documentation in the medical record, which is extremely challenging, uh, and especially in this cohort that had extremely long ICU lengths of stay. An additional limitation that we identified was that we decided to include all modalities of renal replacement therapy, mostly for completeness, but completely recognize that there may be some challenges in making comparisons between continuous renal replacement therapy, intermittent hemodialysis, and peritoneal dialysis in terms of the, especially in terms of the amount of fluid that can be removed with each um, in the 72 hours after. 
the inclusion of ECMO patients is also somewhat challenging. And as I mentioned before, the amount of ultrafiltration was dictated by the attending intensivists and likely played a role in the fluid balance in these patients. They also represent a, a cohort that is uh, unique in and of them themselves and sick and carry their own risk of morbidity and mortality as well. So that makes things challenging. And then the other challenging with this and other retrospective studies and trying to answer this question is that all patients received renal replacement therapy. And so it makes it challenging to answer the question of which patients will benefit most from early renal replacement therapy and which will recover completely on their own and potentially which patients will receive no benefit from renal replacement therapy at all. What are the implications of your study for the pediatric intensivist? So I think there are a couple of important implications here, despite the limitations that I had mentioned earlier. So our findings were consistent with several prior studies indicating that mechanical ventilation at the time of starting renal replacement therapy as being a risk factor for mortality. And I think it speaks to the severity of illness of these patients. Additional organ system involvement may have contributed to the development of fluid overload and acute kidney injury. And I wouldn't necessarily say that this means that no patient on a ventilator should receive renal replacement therapy. Rather, I think it speaks to the importance of being mindful of our renal function and our fluid balance for these patients who are ventilated, and as we try to manage whatever it was that led them to be intubated in the first place. I think our finding that a longer duration of stage three acute kidney injury prior to starting renal replacement therapy as being associated with increased mortality was very interesting and one that I think requires more investigation to see if it holds true in a larger cohort and studied in a prospective manner. But I think the biggest implication of this finding for the intensivists is that Early discussion about renal replacement therapy when a patient develops stage three acute kidney injury is warranted. And I think it's important to think about the definition of acute kidney injury and which what bump in creatinine or drop in urine output actually constitutes a patient developing stage two or stage three acute kidney injury, because I think it shifts the mindset of the people caring for the patient at the bedside. And I think it's important for the intensivist to think about the any potential barriers that may lead to a delay in initiating renal replacement therapy if a decision to start is made. And I think it's important to have a then multidisciplinary discussion about the risks and benefits of performing an invasive procedure for a dialysis catheter and the subsequent management between the ICU and the nephrology teams. And to that end, in, in evaluating the efficacy of our renal replacement therapy management, I think our finding of a higher fluid balance after starting renal replacement therapy speaks as being a risk factor for mortality, speaks to the the notion of what renal replacement therapy can actually provide for you in a critically ill uh, child. And so when I think of renal replacement therapy, I think of it as a method of removing fluid and augmenting solute balance, but it can only remove what is in the vascular space. And oftentimes critically ill patients in our PICU have significant capillary leak and third spacing and Although they may be grossly fluid overloaded, they have some relative amount of intravascular depletion. And so when renal replacement therapy is initiated, it may be challenging to remove fluid because of hypotension. So I think this speaks to the importance of preventing kidney injury in the first place and with close surveillance and and doing our best to manage the underlying disease process underneath. So where do we go from here? What else do we need to study further? So I think there's a lot more to study. I I do think that we need prospective studies um, and ideally multi-center so that we can gain a a larger number of patients to evaluate other potential risk factors for mortality in patients receiving renal replacement therapy. One thing that has been underappreciated in this cohort, I think, is the 
adequacy of nutrition in this group of patients receiving renal replacement therapy and whether when we start renal replacement therapy, whether that either helps us or assists us with them achieving their goal energy and their goal protein needs. I think that it would be important to further evaluate the differences in those patients who develop the same level of acute kidney injury who receive renal replacement therapy with those who don't receive it to see if we can't try to identify a subset of patients who will benefit most from the early initiation of renal replacement therapy. And then finally, there's a lot of variability in the literature as to what defines early versus delayed renal replacement therapy. And so I think we need to come to more of a consensus as to what that means. And, you know, we are learning a lot more about different biomarkers of kidney function, which I think will be important because I think creatinine and urine output are relatively late markers of kidney injury. And when you have a rise in creatinine or a drop in urine output, it can sometimes indicate that there's already a significant amount of kidney injury present. You have given us a very informative uh, talk about your study and about uh, renal replacement therapy, and I thank you for that. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? I just have to acknowledge my my co-authors and, and mentors, uh, both Dr. Michael Ferguson of the Nephrology Department and Josh Salvin, who's my colleague in the CICU, for their guidance and help on this project. I definitely wouldn't have been able to complete it without them. This was my first step into clinical clinical research, and I definitely had a lot of challenges and learned a lot along the way. And I'm looking forward to see where things go in the future. There's definitely a lot more work to be done. So um, just have to tell you again, thank you for having me on the podcast. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. It's been a pleasure. We have been speaking today with Dr. Daniel L. Haynes on his article, Risk Factors for Mortality in Critically Ill Children Requiring Renal Replacement Therapy, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in November 2019. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York. She is a former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. She is currently serving as Associate Editor of Critical Care Medicine and Senior Associate Editor of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Join or renew your membership with SCCM the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.